Good morning again. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 through 56. You can find that on page 709 of the Bibles in the back. If you uh, don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one from the back. And if you don't own a Bible, I would encourage you to uh, keep that. Take it with you, write your name in the front, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. As we come to God's Word, let's pray again. Please pray with me. Our Father, again, we come to you in weakness, seeking your strength. We come to you as sinful and seeking your grace. We come to you as um, deaf and blind, as the scriptures say, to spiritual things, praying that you would open our ears and open our eyes, that we would see you in all of your glory, that we would hear of your mercy in your Son. Father, we pray that you would allow us to see and hear of Jesus this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 26, verses 31 through 56. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. 
Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching. You did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Which word doesn't fit? Weakness, sorrow, victory. You know the old uh, Sesame Street song, one of these things is not like the other? Weakness, sorrow, victory. Intrinsically, we feel that the word victory doesn't fit into that trio. Weakness and sorrow go hand in hand, but victory... I mean, that's the opposite of weakness and sorrow. If we want, however, if we want the Christian life to make sense, we actually need that trio to ring true in our hearts. We need to understand that victory is found through weakness and sorrow. One of the reasons we flounder in the Christian life, I think, is because we are are trying to be strong. One of the reasons we find ourselves angry at the world is because we're kicking against the sorrow that is there. Victory in the Christian life is found through weakness and sorrow. What we see in our text this morning is a contrast. On the one hand, you have Peter. Peter who is like us. To Peter, weakness and sorrow and suffering mean failure. Strength and happiness and comfort, that means victory. You might think, well, I mean, of course, right? I mean, you've read the book of Revelation, right? I mean, you've read the end, you know the end of the story. There we have a picture of no more crying. God comforts us. We rejoice in his love. We'll be in resurrected bodies that know no weakness. That's victory, right? Yes, And no, that is where we're headed. I mean, that is our hope, the joy that is set before us, that we will one day rise from the dead. We will enter into the wedding feast of the Lamb and dwell forever in intimate fellowship with our God. But that is not where we live. We cannot expect that future now. We see in our text a contrast. On On the one hand, we have Peter who is like us, where weakness and sorrow and suffering mean failure and strength and happiness and comfort, that's what we think of as victory. But on the other half, we have Jesus, who in weakness embraces sorrow and in dependence upon his Father, he heads to the cross. And through that, through that weakness and through that sorrow and through that suffering, he gains victory over sin and death. 
Now, here's the catch for us. Here's the way Jesus characterizes the Christian life. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Scary words, I think. So in our passage this morning, we'll see two stances uh, toward life. The one uh, tries to ignore weakness or hide it. It kicks against the sorrow. It avoids suffering and ultimately fails to be able to deal with life as it really is. But then there's the other stance toward life that acknowledges weakness and embraces sorrow and faces suffering and gains victory over the world. So we're going to look at this contrast. Uh, You can see the outline on the back of your bulletin, uh, pretty straightforward. Peter's boast, Jesus' prayer, and our calling. First, we'll talk about Peter's boast. You may remember from last week that Jesus was headed toward the cross. Various people had begun preparing for Jesus' death, so the religious leaders prepared by plotting to kill him. Uh, Mary prepared for Jesus' death by anointing him with oil, for anointing his body for burial. Judas prepared by offering to betray Jesus. And Jesus prepared by giving his disciples a meal to explain what his death was all about, that he would be a sacrificial lamb, a substitute for our sins. Well, by this this point in the story, Jesus and his disciples are on the Mount of Olives, and they're meandering through the olive grove, and Jesus says to them in verse 31, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, as shocking as this might have been for his disciples, uh, there's comfort in Jesus' words as well. He, He goes on in verse 32 to say, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Jesus, in just two verses, he predicts both his his death the scattering of his disciples, and his resurrection. Interestingly enough, the disciples, all they hear are the words, fall away. And they hear it almost like an accusation. And they immediately begin to defend themselves. Look at verse 33. Uh, The disciples uh, turn to Jesus. Peter particularly answers him and says, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus responds directly to Peter, saying that Peter specifically would deny Jesus three times that very night. Peter protests, of course, that even if he has to die with Jesus, he will not deny him. Now, I don't really like giving Peter a hard time. One, it's just too easy. And and two, because I think that we're a lot more like Peter than we like to admit. There's some good in what Peter says here. Uh, Peter is declaring his love and his devotion to Jesus. Peter is saying, "I, I will be with you to the end, Jesus, no matter what. Even if I have to die with you, if that's what it takes, I'm going to be there with you. And Peter means it. But there's also in Peter's devotion a lot of self confidence. There's confidence in Peter's own strength. Confidence that we'll see in a moment is is in the flesh. Confidence in his own humanity. Peter is confident that he has what it takes to stick with Jesus no matter what. Well, following this interaction, we, we come to the garden called Gethsemane. And Jesus has most of his disciples sit while he goes off to pray. He takes Peter, James, and John with him. 
and Jesus begins to be sorrowful and troubled. Now, we'll look specifically at Jesus more in a minute, but Jesus tells Peter and the other two, he tells them that his soul is sorrowful even to the point of death, and they are to stay and watch with him. And Jesus goes off and leaves them. And what do they do? Well, Peter, who boasted just a moment ago of his devotion to Jesus, Jesus says, stay and watch, and Peter falls asleep. Jesus, Peter's master and friend who expressed this inner turmoil, said, watch with me. But Peter, maybe not knowing what to watch for, uh, not really understanding why his master was under such distress, falls asleep. Jesus is away a long time, so they begin to fall asleep. I don't really know whether they tried to stay awake but couldn't, which if that's so, they wouldn't be the last people to fall asleep during prayer. Or if they saw Jesus walk off and figured that this would be a good time to take a nap. But Jesus comes back, he finds them asleep, and he rebukes them. And this happens three times. He goes away, he comes back, he finds them asleep. He goes away, he comes back, he finds them asleep. And then on the third time, Jesus returns. And then in verse 45, he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus says the time has come, the critical moment, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed. And while Jesus is speaking, Jesus comes with a crowd. He kisses Jesus, which is the way he, he's going to point out who Jesus is. So he points out Jesus by kissing him, and then they lay their hands on Jesus and seize him. And at this moment, Peter sees his opportunity, right? Peter, who said that he would be with Jesus even to the death, Peter, who meant it, right? He draws his sword. He strikes at the servant of the high priest, probably trying to cut the guy's head off, but he gets his ear, which is a start, I guess. And why does Peter do that? Because Peter is ready to fight alongside Jesus to the death. He means what he said. He's ready to, to overthrow Rome and to establish the kingdom. He's ready to advance God's agenda by force. See, for Peter, the way to advance the kingdom is, is not by suffering, but it's by causing your enemies to suffer. I mean, that, that's the way kingdoms are established, right? That's the way kingdoms expand by conquest. And Peter is ready for the conquest with Jesus. Of course, Jesus says in verse 52, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. See, first, Peter, uh, Jesus tells Peter to put his sword away, which had to be a shock to Peter. I mean, this is the moment, right? This is the time of conquest. Surely this confused Peter. I mean, what do you mean, Jesus? What's, what's going on, Jesus? I mean, why are you allowing this to happen, Jesus? It's the way we often respond, right? When difficulty comes, we expect the Christian life to be victorious, and it's all upward and forward. But then it gets hard, and we struggle with sin, or our loved one gets sick. We begin to get confused. We begin to ask, what's going on, Jesus? I don't understand. Why are you allowing this? Well, we want Jesus to get his sword and just come and slay our enemies and make everything right. But Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away. And then he gives him a warning. He says, all who live by the sword will die by the sword. It's not a hard and fast rule, of course, but he's warning against a way of life. 
saying, if this is the way of life you choose, Peter, if you choose to live by force and by violence, then you will be under the threat of force and violence for all of your life. Jesus gives a, a third uh, thing here. He does a third thing. He reasons with Peter about what's going on. Look at verse 53. He says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? It's, it's kind of a bold claim, I think. Saying, if, if I simply ask my Father, He will at once send more than 12 legions of angels. Now, each Roman legion had it seems like about 5,000 men, from what I can gather, which that's 60,000 angels at Jesus' command. That's what he's saying. Don't you think, Peter, that if I just ask the Father, he will send 60,000 angels to, to come and get my back? And, and Jesus' point here, I don't think is so much, I, I don't need you, Peter, thank you anyway. I don't think that's his point. But I think he's saying, look, if, we, if I wanted to fight, I would win. And he's urging Peter to put away his sword. Not because he's afraid to lose. No. Verse 54 goes on to say, But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. Suffering is the way to Jesus' victory. That's what the Scriptures say. It must be this way. And Peter can't handle that. I mean, the, the thought that you know, that thought that, that Jesus is going to the cross, that, that's an enemy that Peter can't quite defeat. Peter is undone by it. Uh, his master is not going to fight. I mean, this doesn't make sense. He's undone by the thought that Jesus seems to just give up. He's undone by the thought that Jesus is about to be arrested. Where will that lead? A, a trial, a conviction, an execution? I mean, what's going through Peter's head? Jesus, you're, you're going to lose. Jesus, it, it's over. I don't, I don't understand. And then the last sentence of our text this morning says, Then all the disciples left him and fled, including Peter. Peter fled. Let's step back and, and think about Peter for a moment. Peter is committed to Jesus. Like most of us in this room, that's, that's why we're here, right? We're committed to Jesus on some level. Uh, maybe we're on a path to commitment to him. Maybe we're wondering why it's worth committing to Jesus, but we're here. Peter loved Jesus, possibly more than any of us. Peter was also bold in his self-confidence. He thought the way to victory was through a show of strength. Suffering was not part of the equation for Peter. It just didn't make sense, which set Peter up for failure. Suffering is, is not a part of your picture of the Christian life. You are setting yourself up for confusion and failure as well. Peter doesn't know what to do when suffering comes. So he ran. Contrast Peter in this story with Jesus. Jesus knows that suffering is a part of God's plan. He, he predicts his suffering. He, he predicts the disciples will fall away. He predicts Peter's denial Jesus says his arrest and all that follows is that the Scripture should be fulfilled, that it must be so, according to verse 54. And yet knowing that the suffering on some level must happen, knowing that it's a part of God's plan, doesn't take away the pain. 
And so Jesus goes into the garden, and Matthew tells us he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And just to make sure we get the point, Jesus says to his disciples, we're told, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. I don't, I don't know about you, uh, I've actually heard Christians say that a Christian should always be happy. Have you ever heard somebody say that before? Um, it's one of Satan's great lies. And um, I've even heard uh, Christians say that it's a sin for Christians to be sad. Well, Jesus is sorrowful to the point of death without sin. And uh, even when we know that all is going to turn out in the end, sometimes there are good reasons to be sad in the present. Notice the humanness of what is going on, right? Why does Jesus take these three with him? He leaves uh, eight of his disciples at the door, so to speak, and he takes three with him. Why? Why does he ask them to watch with him? Jesus doesn't want to be alone. He doesn't want to be alone on the night of his betrayal. With the thoughts of the cross in his mind, Jesus doesn't want to be left alone. He wants his companions with him to comfort him. Why? Well, because if I can say this reverently, Jesus doesn't want to go to the cross. Jesus stumbles forward a few steps. He falls down on his face and he says to his father, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. You know, Jesus is, is fully human. He's fully God as well, but he's also fully human. And any human being would recoil at the thought of the brutal death of the cross. But that's not what Jesus is thinking about. Jesus says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus isn't thinking about the cross, if I can put it this way. He's thinking about a cup. Psalm 75, verses 7 and 8 say that God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Ezekiel 23 calls this cup a cup of horror and desolation. Isaiah 51 calls it a cup of staggering and the cup of God's wrath. Jesus is not thinking about all the things we might expect. He's not thinking about the, the mocking. He's not thinking about the beatings. He's not thinking about the crown of thorns or the nails or the spear. Jesus is not thinking about the physical torment of the cross. Jesus is thinking about the wrath of the Father that's going to be poured out on him at the cross. He's saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. If there is any other way, any other way, Jesus says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, at this moment, Jesus goes and finds his disciples sleeping. And we read in verse 40, Jesus comes to them and he says to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray, Jesus says, pray that you may not fall into temptation. In some ways, I think that's clear, right? We need divine help if we are not going to fall. Jesus told his disciples just a moment ago that they were going to fall. You might think that would encourage them to pray. But they are in some ways so self-sure, maybe, or maybe so tired, that rather than praying, they are napping. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. It's good advice for us as well, right, to daily watch against the evil one and pray for God's help in the face of temptation. But it's the next line in this sentence that is maybe a little less clear. Jesus says, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I wonder if you've ever attempted to define those two terms as used in this passage, the spirit which is willing and the flesh which is weak. On the one hand, Jesus could simply mean uh, that, that the human spirit of Peter, James, and John wants to do the right thing, but their flesh, their bodies uh, are physically weak. They're unable to carry out the desire of the spirits. Of course, that's, that's, that's probably true. I mean, they are tired, most likely. They, though they wanted to pray with Jesus, it was late. Uh, we fall asleep, right, when we try to pray late at night or early in the morning or many other times of the day. There are other ways of defining those two terms, though. Spirit could mean the Holy Spirit, in which case Jesus is saying, look, the Holy Spirit inside of you men is moving and is active and is working and is willing. He can help you. Ask him. Pray. But the flesh is weak. Uh, again, flesh may simply mean our physical bodies, but sometimes flesh refers to, to all, the whole of humanity, right? My whole humanity, not just my physical body, but me as a human being. I am flesh. Flesh and blood even sometimes it's used to refer to the whole human person, body, soul, spirit. In this sense, Jesus himself is flesh, right? He's the eternal word, become flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God took on humanity and condemned sin in the flesh, according to Romans 8.3. Why does Jesus at this moment say, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak? I think it's because Jesus in this moment in the garden is experiencing the weakness of his humanity even as at the same time he experiences the willingness of the Spirit. Jesus doesn't sin in the garden, right? Jesus is sinless, but he is tempted, just as we are, the Bible says. He's tempted maybe to run from the cross. That's Satan's lie that he told him in the wilderness, you remember. Watch and pray, Jesus says, that you may not enter into temptation. Your humanity is weak. Pray that God's Spirit would uphold you and strengthen you. Jesus goes away. He prays again. Uh, this time his prayer is a little bit different in verse 42. He says, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus has laid his cares at the feet of his Father and yet resolved to do the Father's will no matter what. You know, we have so many misconceptions about prayer. Uh, we think sometimes, well, if God knows my situation, you know, why, why bother telling him about it? Why pray? 
just going to bore him. Right? Not Jesus, right? He prays and prays and prays again. And he must be praying for a significant amount of time. He says to Peter, could you not pray with me one hour? That was the first time, which means the second time might have been another hour, and the third time might have been another hour. Jesus is laying his cares before his father. He he doesn't think he's boring his father. He doesn't think he's informing him of of things he already knows. For uh, For prayer for Jesus is not about the transfer of information, but an expression of our heart to our father who loves us. He's laying himself before his Father. Sometimes we think of prayer as simply a means of getting what we want, right? And we even sort of evaluate prayer based on that. If we don't get what we asked for, then, well, that's proof that prayer doesn't work. I prayed for this, and I prayed for this, and I prayed for this, and God didn't give it to me. God must not be there. He must not have heard me. Well, if that were the case, of course, Jesus' prayer in the garden is a failure. Take this cup from me. But again, prayer is about the intimacy of a relationship. It's about pouring out my heart to my Father. And in the prayer of Jesus, we see that prayer is is more about us being conformed to His will than about God being conformed to my will. So Jesus lays out His heart to His Father a third time. And notice Jesus, by the time the crowd comes for Him, He says to the disciples, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. To Judas, he says, friend, do what you came to do. To Peter, he says, put your sword back in its place. To the crowds, he says in verse 55, "Uh, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Do you see Jesus' confidence? Why is he so confident? He was just weeping in the garden a moment ago, asking for the Father to take away the cup. And now he's standing there, facing it confidently. He knows what's coming, but he spent time with his Father, and he trusts in the will of his Father. In the last verse, all the disciples left Jesus. They all left Jesus to suffer alone. Of course, that's the way it had to be. Jesus alone is the spotless, perfect, sinless lamb. Jesus alone could bear our punishment and our sin. And so Jesus goes to the cross alone to do the will of the Father. Acknowledging weakness, human weakness, embracing the sorrow, facing the suffering, he goes to drink the cup of the Father's wrath alone for us. And he empties the cup of the Father's anger for our sin so that we might never have to drink even a drop. And by drinking the cup, Jesus wins the victory. See, through his suffering, Jesus defeats sin and death by taking on the Father's wrath. He takes away sin's condemnation for us. He takes away death's claim on us. Jesus rises from the dead, a victorious, conquering king. He has won through his death. And through his resurrection, Jesus has won the victory through suffering. You might think then, what that means is that there's no suffering left for us, right? Jesus bore it all in the cross. Jesus suffered, right? So we don't have to. And that's true. Uh, Jesus suffered the wrath of the Father so that we would never have to taste the Father's anger for us. 
But if you, if you trust in Jesus, he has satisfied all of the wrath of the Father, all of the anger of the Father for our sins. He has taken it upon himself. There's none left for you. All that's left for you is the Father's love and delight in you as his child. But Jesus then calls us to take up our cross and follow him. Which, whatever that means, it must be a call to suffer. Because crosses are never pretty. And so we come to a a kind of divide in life as we look at these two different ways of living. We can live a life of self-reliance or a life of prayer. We can live by, by power, relying on our own strength, seeking to avoid suffering and sadness. Or we can live honestly in our weakness, seeking the strength of God's Spirit and embracing the sorrow. I actually think we need to cultivate an approach to life that embraces the sorrows of life. Because there are things in the world that we should be sorrowful about. You know what they are in your life, right? Uh, Regrets or disappointments or pain or sickness or brokenness or, or shipwrecked relationships, estranged children, failed marriages, right? There are lots of ways in which we suffer in this life involuntarily. Things that are out of our control. The best way to deal with sadness is, is to feel it. It's the only thing we can do with sadness. To allow ourselves the luxury of being sad and pour out our soul to our God. Not, not in self-pity, of course, not playing the victim, but feeling sad about genuine sorrows in the world and entrusting yourself to your Father's will, saying, Father, I weep over these things, I mourn over these things, I'm broken over these things, yet I know that you love me. Step into this world and make things right. And yet Jesus' suffering wasn't involuntary. It was voluntary and it was others-centered, right? I'm certainly not advocating suffering for suffering's sake. Not masochism, right? I'm not saying that if you're in an abusive relationship, you should stick around. If you're in an abusive relationship, you should get out. You should tell someone who can help you. Get out. But the New Testament does call us to a life of suffering. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And and that means a a number of things in Scripture. I'm just going to mention three, three things that that means, three things that actively taking up our cross and following Jesus and willingly accepting suffering. What does that look like in the New Testament? The New Testament calls us, on the one hand, to suffer for our enemies, to suffer for the suffering, for those who suffer, and to suffer for our loved ones. Uh, To put it differently, to embrace suffering and sorrow means to live a life of forgiveness and compassion and patience. That makes it sound easier, doesn't it? But it's it's not. Uh, First, forgiveness, right? You're called to suffer for your enemies. Peter says in one of his letters that we are to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us. Paul says that in Ephesians. Forgiveness always means, rather than paying you back for what you did, rather than making you suffer for what you did, I simply feel the pain of your sin against me, and I embrace the sorrow and accept the pain. Again, it it doesn't, I'm not saying you should stay in a bad situation, but it does mean that, that you don't try to get people back. 
You know that our God is big enough to handle our pain. He's big enough to, to, to walk us through the valley of the shadow of death. Whenever you forgive someone, you're accepting the pain rather than inflicting it back on them, rather than paying them back. This is part of what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. He made the way for our forgiveness, not by paying us back for our sins, not by giving us to drink the cup of God's wrath, but by taking the cup of God's wrath for us, by accepting the pain and the punishment for sin. We do that every time we forgive, every time we say, I'm not going to pay you back for this. Second, think about compassion. Uh, we're called to, to suffer for those who suffer. Compassion uh, means to suffer with someone. That's what the word compassion means. To suffer with and at the very least, right, compassion means to weep with those who weep or to mourn with those who mourn. But, but the emotion of compassion is expressed in, in acts of compassion. To take on the sufferings of others upon yourself. This may be in little things, right? It could be very little things, like helping a stressed out student to study when you would really need to be doing something else, right? But you're, you're giving of your time, you're, you're suffering in a little way. To, to take this person's suffering upon yourself, right? To help them, to serve them through their difficulty. You're allowing their suffering to become your own by spending your time with them. Whatever it is, compassion means I'm going to love you so much that some of your pain is going to become mine. That's what compassion is. That's to take up our cross and follow Jesus, right? Uh, who loved us so much, he took our pain as his own on the cross. Or think about patience. We're called to suffer for those we love. This is really the hardest, by the way, I think. Because it's the one we run into every day. I have so much difficulty being patient. Why do we have such a hard time with patience? I, I was in Barnes & Noble this week. And uh, I had called ahead and asked them to set aside a book for me. And when I got there, they had set aside a book for me. It just happened to be the wrong book. And uh, I was a little perturbed, right? Just a little bit. And um, they sent me to the help desk. Okay, fine, I'll go to the help desk. I'll walk over to the help desk, and there's no one there. So I'm waiting at the help desk. I'm waiting at the help desk, and uh, I'm getting a little more perturbed. And uh, the, the, the person who comes, he's much less than helpful. I didn't chew him out. I, I didn't yell and scream. I he probably thought I was just a you know, calm, normal human being, but on the inside, I was not patient. Do you know the old King James word for patience? It's the best. It's, it's the word long-suffering. Long-suffering. To be patient is to be willing to suffer a long time. That's what it means to be patient. When... when you are impatient at the bookstore, it's because you're not willing to suffer the inconvenience of waiting. Right? That's what's going on. Uh, when you're impatient with people who are late, it's because you're not willing to suffer the inconvenience of having your schedule messed up. When you're impatient with someone who yells at you and you snap back, it's because you're not willing to suffer the disrespect being sinned against in that way. Because you're not willing to suffer, you're, you're not willing to be patient, you're not willing to forgive, you're not willing to let it go. 
Much of our bitterness in life, I think, is from this unwillingness to embrace the sorrow. Uh, We think that we're bitter because we suffer, but actually the bitterness comes from an unwillingness to receive the sorrow, right? And turn to our Father and weep at His feet. Know that He's big enough to cover the pain. Now you might be thinking, well, if this is the Christian life, why would I have any desire to enter into it? It's a good, fair question. Let me give just two answers briefly. One is that it is as we are willing to enter into suffering that we begin to know the power of Christ's resurrection. Paul says God's power is made perfect in our weakness. When we are weak, then we are strong. Which means when we try to be strong and we try to avoid the suffering in the world, we ignore it, we set it aside, we don't know God's power the way we would otherwise. We are actually cutting off the power of God by trying to be strong. Paul says elsewhere that to know Christ and the power of his resurrection is to share in his suffering and to become like him in his death. See, as we take up our cross and follow him, we come to understand his resurrection power in us. Here's another reason. Uh, The book of Hebrews says of Jesus that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Why would you enter into a life of forgiveness and compassion and patience when you know what that will mean? When you know that that will mean pain and, and suffering and sorrow for the joy set before you, for knowing your Father's pleasure, for knowing Christ's resurrection power, for the hope of our own resurrections to come, for the joy that is set before us, we follow Christ. That doesn't take away the sorrow, the joy, but it does put it in perspective. Can I encourage you to take up your cross and follow Jesus this week? To embrace the sorrow, to forgive those who sin against you, to show forgiveness to those who suffer, show compassion to those who suffer, to be patient with those around you, and to do all that knowing that in those things, Christ's resurrection power will be made known. Let's pray. Our Father, we do want to know your resurrection power. We do want to know your victory over sin and death. We do want to experience that, and yet we don't want to suffer along the way. We don't want the pain, the difficulty, and the sorrow. We don't want to admit our weakness. certainly don't want to boast in our weakness. Father, we pray that you would that you would help us to see Jesus in such a way that, that we would long to be like him. But of course, being like him means suffering like him. It means taking up our cross and boldly embracing the sorrow so that we might know your joy, that we might know your love, that we might experience the resurrection power of Christ working in us. Turn our hearts to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.